Yeah, how do we how do we begin? Goats. Goats. I love goats. What do you think goats represents, or what's the deal with the goats? Hey everybody, I'm Pat McMahon. Uh, we are here to introduce uh, another episode of Converge Collaborative's podcast, Bring Your Full Self, a uh, very exciting roundtable episode. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Yoshitsu. Thanks, Pat, for that introduction to why we're all here. Um, this is, as you said, our first roundtable episode. In light of Converge's interest in experimentation, media, art, labor, and collaboration, we're going to discuss the first season of Severance, a show that talks all about those topics, which is streaming on Apple TV+. I didn't even realize it was Apple TV+. Thanks for adding that in. This conversation will discuss the whole first season, so there will be lots of spoilers, everyone. Um, so please watch the show before you listen or just enjoy our conversation. Awesome. Yeah, Amy, in our weekly one-on-ones, um, we often are talking to one another about the different shows or podcasts or books that we've been consuming. And I distinctly remember kind of early on um, in our in the building of Converge, you had presented a really enthusiastic recommendation for this show, Severance, uh, both because it was a really compelling show, well-produced, uh, well-acted, but also because it's a really good companion for the ideas that we're holding here in Converge and what we're trying to build. Absolutely. I'm so excited about this. This is our first conversation about a creation, a media, um, a piece of art that relates to the themes of Converge. And we're especially interested in the emotional implications of bifurcating your consciousness to separate your work and personal life. We get into ideas of race, gender, being a creative person, an artist, reproduction, and the relationships between capitalism, authoritarianism, and hierarchy in labor and in religion. We analyze the show and use it as a jumping off point to share our own views and experiences. So in case we haven't talked about it before, the name of this podcast, as you said at the top, is Bring Your Full Self. And this came from the idea of inviting people to be their full selves as much as possible in their labor context. Um, we thought severance, the literal antithesis of this idea, would be a perfect topic to start our roundtable episode series with. As you mentioned, the show is based very literally around this separation of, of work and, and non-work selves. But I really like the way that in a roundtable environment, the conversation between you, myself, and another member of Converge, Rios, uh, through this conversation, we uncovered the ways that things like identity, family, uh, authority, reward systems, fear, all of those things play both into the show as themes and concepts, but also into our experiences of work. I really loved the way that the threads of, of theme and topic throughout the show really tied back in. And we all had a lot to add um, in terms of our experiences and our thoughts around this concept. Um, one of the most rewarding things for me about being a part of Converge is the way that we all learn from each other, particularly, I'll speak personally, the way that I learned from you all about how to articulate and express feelings that we share that we may not all have, and I speak for myself, I definitely don't always have the language for. Um, I think that this episode and conversation is a really vibrant example of the way that we all come together and the parts of the sum are greater than the whole. So with that, I'm very excited to introduce this episode, which is a conversation between myself, Amy Yoshitsu, and David Rios. How do we begin? Goats. Goats. 
I love goats. <laughs> Sorry. That, that, no. What do you th- what do you think goats represents, or what's the deal with the goats? I don't know that, but that's one of those things that that I was thinking a lot about. It's like, what is up with the goats? It, it kind of just made me think about like how, like, what the fuck does this company actually do? Yes. You know? What do you think they do? I don't know. I mean, I really like it. Almost like, you know, I could see it like in in terms of like storytelling and making an actual television show. I could see it being some like crazy, insidious, like sci-fi, you know, whatever. But in terms of just being a critique of work, like it kind of doesn't matter what they do, right? Yeah. I think that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought the company was a pharmaceutical company, right? That's what they're known for, the greater company. And so the question is, what is this, like, what is the work they're doing? And are they actually doing work that is serving any function on the computer or is this purely a like a human experiment in the way that somehow the goats are a human experiment like the goat thing made me think more that it was like they're experimenting on all types of beings also goats representing the devil i don't know that was like also like i don't know where that fits in that's really interesting i hadn't thought about um it as like a social experiment until i saw the notes that you had taken um i think that that's a really interesting prospect because yeah rios i agree with you like it's sort of a situation where it feels like the work doesn't matter i thought we were going to get some resolution towards like specifically what the work was as though that was like the um that seemed like the mystery that was going to be solved at the end of the season and uh and i feel like not getting really any insight into that uh hammers home both of those points that the work doesn't really matter quite as much potentially and that amy maybe it's you know maybe they're just testing out how different people or different living things react to different scenarios yes and is breeding a main thing here because there's another thing about the woman the senator's wife who's Mm -hmm. doing the process to have a child and I guess in the goat thing, they're breeding goats? Like, they're all babies, right? Uh, the no, goats they're... were babies? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So there's something about, like, actual eugenics. I don't know. I also like wondering if it's about, like, nurture versus nature. Like, something about, like, human population. Like, lot. <laughs> I know this is way bigger than just work, but I don't know. They're intertwined. Like those, those four pillars, Amy, that you were talking about, work, race, identity, um, what was the fourth one? There was another art. big piece. And art. Yeah. Oh, art. That's such an interesting, yeah. So those four, those four kind of components of the show, I feel like overlap really well with the, the things that we're working on within Converge. Um, yeah. So this sort of felt like a no-brainer in terms of, uh, a show to discuss and get everybody's thoughts about. Yeah, I agree. I especially for me the basis of it being severance and the idea of bifurcating your life based on work. And I think our goal here is to be more acknowledge to acknowledge more that it's impossible and that we can't live that a life of separation. And I find it interesting how in this show how they. Uh, identified the different reasons why people would want to separate their life. 
and that those are all intertwined with emotions and somewhat identity maybe and talking about like uh, kind of a commentary on our current state of like why do people get into full-time jobs especially ones that are more like middle management or numbers pushing I mean this is like literally numbers pushing (laughs) in a digital (laughs) manner yeah I think that's a I think that's a great point um you know the the work-life balance kind of being like a a very key component to uh, to like what the themes of this show are like all built around. I think is uh, it's like a very interesting play on that concept of like how do you work and and live simultaneously. Like one solution is a total, total split of those two lives. Um, I think that one of the things that I was looking at your notes and you were talking about how, you know, Miss Cobell, uh, Patricia Arquette's character, you know, when she's like, I, I, one thing that I was thinking of was how, even though she's a, uh, a person who is not severed, she is literally a different person outside of work. Mm-hmm. Like she portrays like a, a, a different role. Or she's she, a different name. Exactly. Yeah. She's like yeah. entirely a different person. So even when you don't go in this drastic split, we are not the same people we are at work when we're not at work. You know, we present differently to the people that we live around. Um, you know, obviously it's a little mm. more insidious mm-hmm. in her, in like what she's doing. But I thought that that was an interesting piece that like, even the folks that are not participating in this split of your psyche are uh behaving in in totally different ways outside of that office mm-hmm. yeah i mean it it also kind of the, like with this within the show right like the reason why they're not severed is because there's this like surveillance aspect of it right like even when they're not at work they're working because they're like mm-hmm. she's keeping track of Marques and all the other people and mm-hmm. making sure like she knows what the media is saying and all that stuff um mm-hmm. and i think there's an analog there too in a lot of in a lot of um workplace structures where like the higher up you go the more it just becomes ingrained into your life you know like th- this idea that like ceo mm. grinding 24 7 like i live my work that kind of stuff um so maybe not necessarily purely from like a surveillance or that kind of insidious aspect but the idea that like the corporation or the company is your identity and it is your life like there's i don't know i feel like there's something there yeah, absolutely. I think that there are so many different examples. And even as we're starting to talk about it, like different things are jumping into my mind about like, you know, the double meaning of so much of the show. There's like, mm-hmm. you know, there's like an extra, there's a a layered component and like a, yeah, sort of a dual meaning to, to just about everything when I really start to think about it. I think this show layers in so many, um, so many bits of information that I can't necessarily identify as why they're important or what they're alluding to, but it feels like there's a lot of allusions to to various stuff. Um, yeah, I guess one of the things that really stands out to me after what we were talking about there, Rios, like you're you're talking about like as as you get higher up in in those um, in those corporate structures kind of the 
the way that you become um, the company that you're working for, I think is really exemplified in the conversations that um, Patricia Arquette's character has with the board, how the board is like a faceless, voiceless Mm -hmm. box that, that serves as the authority. Um, and that there's like really no, no communication with the authority positions, um, except through, a an intermediary, um, you know, like somebody comes down and I don't know, I, I think that piece a little bit, um, ties into the, as you ascend the idea of, as you ascend, you know, you lose yourself to the, to the group think. Yeah. And, 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 um, it's, it's, you know, just as you're saying that it's, it's, it's also like, you know, the investment is there, right? Like theoretically all the severed folks could just stop pushing and unsever or like, you know, they're the, they're the drones, they're the whatever lower level folks. And, but like, you know, actually in a weird way, like, uh, that character of Milicek, all the people who have the conscious duality right like they they like they they feel more tied to the to the company in a way that like like they're they're, uh, what am i trying to articulate there's like a, a vulnerability and stakes that are different at that level because they're so invested you know like she freaks out when she gets fired and she is like in a way more impacted by the fact that her voice carries no weight with with the board right because it's like you know like she's ascended to a point where she should have agency but like actually she doesn't (laughs) that's such a great point yeah i love that because her work self dictates her home self to a certain degree as opposed to in the drones case they just live blissfully separated so um. yeah exactly yeah she she has made both sides of her herself um, prioritized by, by work. So her, her reaction to losing that is much more severe. Um, whereas the severed employees are, are trying to, you know, link those two. Um, there's probably something to be said also about the fact that like, you can't, you can't disassociate those two aspects and you can't put everything into one. Um, you really have to be able to like, find the balance or like prioritize the life part um, much more over so than the the work part. I wonder if the second season, they're going to show more of her motivation, right? Cause they do show that she has an altar to Kier in her house. So there's, I, I also think about how this relates to the severance from interpersonal relationships and personal relationships. Like there must be some personal emotional re- reason she's so obsessed with doing well or like carrying out this plan as opposed to just being in the position she's in. Cause I mean, I don't know. We don't not able to see other people who are in a similar position to her, but she's obviously like so deeply invested. And I would assume it's for a personal emotional reason. Yeah. I think, um, I think the notes that you had taken kind of calling out the religious aspect of, of both work and like the religious mm-hmm. themes in the show. Um, I think that's probably the biggest example of someone, you know, outside of the the physical like uh, building of Lumen, um, mm-hmm. having that kind of deified um, 
relationship to mm. to the CEO and founder because Irving has that inside, and it's clear mm-hmm. that that's a part of like what they're pushing and selling for the employees to buy into. Mm-hmm. Um, also, your your remarks in the notes about the handbook as like a a biblical text, you know, um, very very like. Ten Commandments type language. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. It'll be interesting in the second season to see if we get context not only for Cobell and like why she is invested in that way, but like mm-hmm. context for Lumen kind of globally. You know, it seems like a huge company with you know such a huge legacy. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, um, you know, what other people's thoughts of the company are. At a larger scale, I think that's going to tie into like the congressional aspect as well, and the fact there are protests. I think that ties into the religious aspect. I mean, also, I guess there are protests of corporations too. But the idea that there's like movements built against something it shows how it has like a cultural significance. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I could see it a bunch of different ways, honestly. Like the. You know, I, I kind of liken it to like Steve Jobs or something like or um, Elon Musk, you know, like SpaceX, Apple, like the, the way these sort of like corporations fostered this like zealous like relationships with their consumers, like mm-hmm. and and probably their employees, too. Right. Like that, that people buy in in this way that's like doesn't seem like purely logical or economically based, right? Mm-hmm. And I could see it being a pharmaceutical company too, right? Because because they are having social impact on like a science level and a cultural level, you know. Yeah, I think the I think the irrationality of um, you know, maybe cult of personality or or like that really strong like bond that you're talking about. I think it also plays really heavily into the ideas around like work family, which is so clearly like a huge piece of this show. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, the company being founded uh, and and kind of CEO leadership passed down through the family. And then the fact that Heli is a family member, like the that reveal really um, spoke to me in terms of like all of the corporate messaging that I've received as a, as an employee about how like, yeah, we're part of the XYZ agency family and -hmm. just how that kind of language is meant to make you decide less for yourself as an individual and more for the organization. Um, because it's, it's as though everyone is bought into this, everyone is sacrificing but the sacrifices are coming from the people who are being convinced into that mindset, um, who benefit less from the overall success um, than you know the higher ups than the board. I'm curious. Do you guys have any thoughts on the the family aspect, either in the show or in, have there ever been any instances, I guess, um, wherein? You guys have experienced that kind of like family, uh, we, we, we operate as a family sort of messaging from employers? I have. I definitely uh, have. <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think what's interesting about it is that it assumes that that's a positive thing. I think that there's, a, or it assumes a lot of things about family structure that I think speak to 
uh, like racial differences in family makeup. I don't know. I'm interested to hear what you all think about this. Like uh, there, I have, I have heard that a lot. And like, whenever I talk to my partner about it, we think it's funny because we have so many like conflicts in our family or often like I just watched everything everywhere all at once last night. So I finally watched it Mm. and it, you know, it definitely, I was at the end, I was just like, Oh, Asian people have a lot of all the similar issues in their family. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't obviously like that's not true, but I mean, there is like this thing about uh, like piety to your parents and a certain sense of loyalty that maybe there's more autonomy in like the idea of a white American family sometimes and the like deep, deep guilt that is put in some other cultures in their family relationships. And so the idea is the family is very patriarchal in this sense, I think, and very, this American Fordist patriarchal will take care of you. I think that's the message. Like you give us something, you give us your loyalty and we'll take care of you and it'll be benevolent as opposed to it will be fraught and like guilt ridden and like, you'll feel so conflicted. Cause like, why would you position as family? It's like you associated difficulty with family. So I think there's like a racial and cultural component in America, at least in the situation. Yeah, that's interesting because, like, so I've never been given the, like, family line in a, in a workplace context, but, but definitely, like, in some contexts, heavily implied, and, and in, in, in one of my previous jobs, like, it was very much like, we're not a family, right? But, but that actually, in a weird way, galvanized everybody else to want to get to know each other better because it was like a small place where that was just like ridden like super toxic environment just ridden with conflict everywhere that people felt maybe not family but definitely like this sort of like we're all suffering together kind of thing um so you know i i I think that more just speaks to like the need like the need to define some kind of community or relationship like as humans but especially the humans you're spending eight hours a day with you know Mm -hmm. totally i think that shared sense of uh we're all suffering together is definitely the moments in which i've felt closest with coworkers. like recognize being able to talk openly about like oh this is actually a struggle and the message that we're receiving from the people that uh, manage us are, you know, they're trying to encourage and push and say, Hey, you know, look at all these perks. We're going to have pizza in the office and, and all these kind of things, you know, like the, the, like the, the dance party in the show, like the little incentives, Mm -hmm. the things that keep you, keep you focused on short-term goals. Um, are, are I feel meant to distract and <clears throat> the times when I've felt the most solidarity within an office workplace have been when I can, you know, sidebar in a room, mostly with other people of color. Like that's, that's been such a crucial piece for having those conversations openly. The dialogues about like leadership is very um, homogenous. You know, there's a lot of white men in leadership. And none of us look like them. And we feel a little less bought into the, the, um, the paint coat 
so to speak, you know, like a little bit, a little less mm. bought into the idea of like, all right, everybody's going to, you know, benefit from all of this extra hard work that we're putting in. Um, so I, I think the, the solidarity around, um, no, this is actually really difficult and like acknowledging the difficulty is, is a big piece. I, I see that in the show too. Like when, when they all start to recognize that, um, that they are being manipulated. I think Dylan was probably like a, a crucial part to that because he was the most bought into those small incentives. And then when he realized that there was something much greater uh, in his life, uh, in the form of you know fatherhood and having a kid, he realized how how meaningless the little distractions that they give him that he had super bought into actually were. And the same for Irving, when his relationship was not allowed to continue, then, and he was the most bought in from a religious aspect, I'd say, mm. and that changed it for him. So I do think, yeah, the intersection of kind of like family formation and work is a topic here, kind of going back to what I was saying before, but I don't want to stray us too much, but I am very interested in the idea of using severance to have children or to actually like literally build a family. And so that's something that, you know, I think is key to the underlying ideas of why they're theoretically doing this scientific experiment in my view. I think, I think that's definitely an undercurrent of the show. And like, I think it's tied to, you know, things, things we do see sort of like the legacy structures that we see, you know, in, in different corporations where, where family takes up leadership positions or, you know, like in the case, there's like a tie-in with the senator or something like that. Mm-hmm, so yeah. like, yeah. It's his children. I mean, that's why I didn't even think of that. I, theoretically, those are his children that are being born. So it is about legacy. And yeah, and Helly's part of the legacy. And then like Mark S, his, the whole thing is about his relationship with his wife. Mm-hmm. which I would love to get into more, but there, yeah, every single person has something that's like about their family, a person in their family relates to why they're there or like rebelling. Wow. That is, that's such a great, that's such a great point. Yeah. I didn't realize that each of the four characters in uh what's the department called? MDR. M- multi-data refinement, something micro data. Yeah. Micro data. Yeah. Yeah. Microdata refinement. What a perfect like nothingness name for like, you know, it's just like jargon. <laughs> um but uh but yeah, everybody in that everybody in that room has um like a person. Yeah, the family is a huge motivator for each of those people. I'm curious. Which I think we, is a motivator for work. Anyway, continue. We we haven't uh I think Dylan is the only character we haven't seen sort of a maybe a motivation for why he had participated in yes. severance, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And was it, is it Irving? Irving found like, he's a vet, right? I think that's the implication is that, right? He's doesn't a painter. He, well, he's a painter outside of the, like in his, in his time, but doesn't he open up a, um, or his father was a oh. veteran? One of the two, right? He opens up a chest and finds like a military uniform. Yes. And I yeah. couldn't remember if it was his or his father's. Um, probably not important. Oh. But 
No, it probably is because I didn't realize that. I really want to talk about him and the idea of like being a painter. Mm-hmm. But if he has PTSD, because I'm wondering, like, are his paintings pictures of now I'm thinking, is it about war and PTSD or is it about he's painting the company? He's painting his experience of being in a black hole. And yeah. and then like there's just that scene where he's in the office and he sees all the black paint oozing down. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand what that was until the second watch. And I don't know, like now that you say brought a veteran, like if he's a recent veteran, it could be going to like Iraq and like oil and black paint. I'm mm. I'm just putting that all together right now. No, totally. There was a moment um on my rewatch where and it's just like a it's just like a silent little like cutaway, but they're sitting in the office and Irving is looking at his nails and he realizes that he's got like charcoal under his nails and he's kind of picking at it curiously. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that aspect of like, I, I really like the way they've been able to demonstrate that the severed employees still bring in with them the physicality of whatever they've they've done in their time off. You know, when they would say like, when PD says to Mark, like, I can tell you've been crying. Like, we could tell you've been crying. Mm, mm-hmm. Or, like, when Mark's t- saying to Heli, like, you know, you're not going to actually feel sleep, but you'll be able to tell that you've had a good night's rest. You know, that kind of thing of taking in um, everything that you do outside of work, consciously or unconsciously, um, I think is is crucial. I, I do like the angle of Irving's paintings, like, tying into the um the vision that he sees when he's at the office um Mm -hmm. and that overwhelm one thing that you wrote in here amy um that i think is really really interesting is around the the use and kind of manipulation of emotion um, particularly the asking for a handshake when uh, Mark has done something well. <laughs> yeah. And the very the very formal, would you like a handshake? You're going to have you to- can re- request You one. can request yeah. a handshake. Yeah. yeah. No, exactly. I, I just think the, the like, the, how'd you put it? The corporatization of human interaction, um, you know, the, the making your eyes kind, all of these pieces as performance for, um, you know, performance for success or like performance of kind of a uh, human interaction as like a, a little reward given out, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was thinking about that and then thinking about us talking a lot about the company as the family structure and just like, do those two things align? Are those two things contradictory? I don't know. And then also thinking about that in relationship to the break room. I'm very interested in the break room and this idea of breaking people, like I guess breaking their will or breaking their spirit. And just from like a technical like query of what you think, do you like, What's the point at which, like, can, you can never really, I don't know, you can tell me what you think, change someone's mind. Like, even if they say this thing, I guess it's relating to torture, that, like, confessions. And 
and they supposedly have some kind of like, you know, lie detector machine, etc. But like, even if she says it 17 times versus 1700 times, is it saying that it's registering her exhaustion or that she's truly sorry? Because she doesn't like change her opinion of wanting to get out of there after mm-hmm. she's like, quote, in the break room. I don't know. I guess like now that you brought up that he's a veteran, I see much more relationships to war now. I will say I did not make the connection of the break room and like reaching a breaking point until just now. I really love this discussion because I'm like, I'm like, we've, we've each kind of like each of our minds has like opened up to a different particular thing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know where I stand on it. I mean, I think there's definitely uh, the break room is, is, I mean, it is a torture chamber. Like part of me was just thinking like, Oh, like, what if they don't even measure it? Like, what if what if they mm. just pretend to, you know? Mm, mm-hmm. Like, what if that's just, it is the tactic, and it do, that also doesn't matter, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah, this idea of it as a, an extended social experiment, I feel like is, is uh, picking up evidence and picking up steam in my mind. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely, to me, one of the key uh, evidence of it being a social experiment is the fact that they have kind of going to art that painting, right? That's of what, but they have a painting where it's each department is basically horrible devil creatures, right? That are destroying the company. And so there's clear manipulation that they're trying to keep departments away and pit them against each other. And it's just interesting, like the use of art and the fact that these two men like have a romance because of their interest in art. Like there is this like, and then also the fact that Petey's daughter is a punk singer. Like there is an interesting overlap of like different artistic forms. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll throw one more in there. When, when Mark is having his wellness session, um, he sculpts uh, a tree and I thought he sculpts the tree. I actually had to like, in reading a recap, I had to kind of piece together what was happening in this, but I believe he pieced together or he, um, sorry, he sculpted the tree that was related to the, the car crash that his wife was in. I believe that was like, uh, he visits a tree kind of in a quiet moment. Um, at some point at night and, uh, and I think that was the same tree that he then sculpts when he's in that session. So it, it's an interesting thought on like how deeply are the things in their minds buried? Um, you know, what does it take to kind of bring those things out? I don't know. And and as it relates to art, like, you know, from if we look at it from one side, Mark is severed on the inside and um, sculpting something that his brain knows from the outside. Mm-hmm. And then on the outside, Irving is doing is painting my interpretation of his, his, um, cause he's painting like a black door. My assumption mm-hmm. was that he was painting, um, the break room, like the, the view of walking mm. into the break room. So like maybe, mm-hmm. maybe obsessed with and unable to identify what that mm-hmm. thing is. Um, so the, the, on either side of severance art is bringing out the, the kind of buried trauma mm-hmm. of, um, of what's happening on the other side. Mm, I love that. 
Well, I'm giving Rios time to think. <laughs> no, I, I agree with that. I mean, like, it's, you know, they they definitely set up that duality really nicely. Um, and it, and it, with respect to the break room, it, it plays into, um, I don't know, I feel like it plays into this, like, idea of, like, tapping some kind of subconscious or monitoring a subconscious, like, the fact that it's his wife and and that, you know, yeah, the rewards they get from it and the sort of like, you know, this idea that like to placate, like in Mark's case, like to, to, to sort of to sort of bring Mark back into the fold of the company, they refer to like things he can't know as a severed person. Like on the outside, mm. you're, you know, you're a caring person. Mm. Your, your Audi loves whatever, you know, like that type of talk. It like, I didn't, I didn't really click into this until we started talking, but all of that just makes me think it's, it's again, like just part of, part of the greater experiment on the human mind. Yeah. I mean, they're really, fo- I'm interested as to why they're so focused in on him or especially Miss Cobell is so focused in on him, like trying to see his interactions with his wife. Like they're really trying to see if like eternal sunshine from a spotless mind comes <laughs> to be, and they're like deeply in love, and they're going to show that that overcomes this procedure, or they're afraid of that, or whatever. But um, I do want to talk about the wife, just like from like a racial and gender point of view, mm-hmm. her being the only Asian person and an Asian femme, and the person who has the least agency, the mm-hmm. person who's like has to die in the regular world to exist purely as like an experimental tactic I think in relationship to the main character as a white man and like I like just like that really was very striking and just like for me also always see whenever I watch anything always seeing like you know how they put different characters or different races in different positions and you know there's there it was just depressing and I I hope that there is she's gonna have agency or she's gonna like actually have a reason to exist other than just as this like super passive essential like robot who also like her only role in the show is to give care to people. Yeah. That was a piece that I noticed as well as the caregiving piece that, that this character um, is an Asian woman and tasked with like being the only representation of like uh, gentleness, like from a, from a, an employed standpoint. Uh, or from, you know, from like a, an oversight, she's sort of in a position of authority, but not really because they're able to like do her very easily. Mm-hmm. That also feels like, you know, I, that was also like a sort of complicated thing. Um, whether it was like a level of, it, it felt like uh, a level of incompetence or, or simplicity of like, oh, you know, this person can be easily sent away. Um yeah, and, and the fact that she only exists in that, in that, because presumably she's severed as well. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But but perhaps not. I really don't understand what's going on with with her character. I would really hope that, and I would imagine that a lot of the next season might focus on her. I think that this season ended with uh, Mark saying she's alive. Right, that was how it ended, um, in reference to her. Yes, but then it also ended with them, like, essentially kind of killing her or whatever that is. Like, not killing her, but, like, putting her to sleep in some way. Like, Oh, yes, I right? forgot like, about that. She got fired. Yeah, so she yeah. Goes into, yeah. Oh, I forgot that. Yeah. 
Oh, that's terrifying. And then similar to what you're saying, Rios, about like say like the what the person who's like the orchestrator of everyone's like, you know, in the regular world you're happy or something. Like telling her to placate her death in this world that like her Audi is okay in some way. So then that made me think all the things they say about everyone outside are a lie. Oh, totally. Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I also recognize that in those wellness sessions, they're just saying things. They're yeah, not yeah, actually they're like, things. yeah. Um, which feels so manipulative. You know, it's it's manipulation from uh, from your employer, um, and like convincing you, con- convincing you that you do have a good life outside, uh, regardless of whether or not that's actually the case. That yeah. resonated a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still stuck on what her role is, like. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if this is going to further the conversation, but I'm. I like the the big question for season two for me is like, it's literally the one character who has no Audis or presumably has no Audi, mm. and pretty much no agency within the company either. Mm-hmm. Like I think from the beginning, she's she. Uh, first, it's just a neutral, and then uh, maybe like Corona, like third or fourth episode, we we get a sense that she's unhappy with her job but still doing it. And then we kind of get insight into like what the dynamics are that create that role. I think there's one scene where she's like passing Mark in the hallway and crying, but he doesn't know why, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I like, I, yeah, I, I haven't been reading any theories online or anything, so I have, I don't know. Me either. I don't know what people are saying about it, but but I think the fact that there is, you know, it is the only Asian woman who who is also in this like very specific like detached and like muted role that I don't know. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of things that could be really deep there or like, you know, my cynical take on most media is just like what if they just fucking didn't pay attention absolutely <laughs> and it means or they didn't pay <laughs> no they didn't pay attention or they just like it is subconscious to them that this right. is the appropriate role for someone right. who looks like that right yeah i mean that i also think about how his love interest they they <clears throat> did i wonder or who knows if they made a conscious choice to be like your three love interests are a black woman an asian woman and a white woman and if they purposely are like trying to create this diversity love interest circle around this white guy. Huh. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but that's a great point. And how one of them, like the black woman, he is using her in some ways more than he's like truly in love with her. Mm -hmm. And the white woman, I don't know. It's more of like, they're more equal in power. I get, I don't know. No, she's his subordinate, but they're also like, a teammate in terms exactly of like they're they're rebelling. in it together right they're yeah. in it together and and they share the perspective right they're yeah they're both in the same boat and yes. i think it's like very clear that mark's relationships with his own wife and also yeah. the woman that he's choosing to date in real life like the choices that he's making are are bringing him to people that the show is in some ways demonstrating how little he has in common with whereas mm-hmm. like like, and and it's an interesting thing too that like his interactions with his wife, while like not in that 
relationship dynamic are so void of um, emotion. You know, she tells him he can't react to the things that mm-hmm. she says. Mm-hmm. And then we see him have this like really, you know, cute TV office romance dynamic with Helly mm-hmm. R, despite the fact that, you know, she like, despite the, the, the circumstances of overwhelming, overwhelmingly hating the thing and the place that you're in, like the two of them are finding love. Yeah. You know, like that's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting commentary to look at. Did you all see that coming? Like that they were going to like kiss? Totally. Yeah. I was really I hoping that they wouldn't. I was hoping Me it too. wouldn't go in that direction. Because it was, it, you know, when she attempted suicide, I thought it was really, um, the care that his character showed for her, I thought was really sweet. And the mm-hmm. way that he's like constantly trying to, like he took one, to, he went to the break room on her behalf. You know, he's really looking mm-hmm. out for her. And I wanted that to be based around a solidarity, not a romance. Yeah. So that was a little, that was a little disappointing, but it makes sense from a TV perspective. I think they, I don't know. That seems like a trope, you know? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Very, very Jim and Pam. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Hijinks in the office. (laughs) I also think it's interesting that the other two men, like Helly's the only woman in the office and the other two men, one is gay and one is, you know, Dylan is not at all presented as like a, a romantic or sexual person. You know, he's mm-hmm. kind of like a, he's like an overweight guy. He's, he's balding and he's focused on like finger traps. You know what I mean? Like, and he's the only person of color. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. the, the two, the two people in less, the two men in the room in less, um, kind of white patriarchal positions um, are just seen as like, of course they're going to be the office buddies of, you know, there is no romantic underlying romance between Helly and these two people. So it, it's so clear that the underlying romance would be between the beautiful female lead and the handsome male lead, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. Dylan... both of whom are white. Yeah. Right. Well, Dylan, I think, also has this added layer of like because he's. I mean, I know we don't we don't learn what a what a waffle party is. waffle party is that <laughs> yeah we no, don't waffle, learn we don't we learn do. what it is till later oh yeah right yeah. but and it's but sexual like, and it's sexual and but I think leading up to that like the fact that Dylan is more of like the comedic and you know he's fat and he's kind of off to the side and he's making finger trap like there's a level of sort of like oh he's like the goofy kind of like we don't no one says he's pervy but he probably is right like he's gonna Mm. he he seems like the guy most likely to make a dick joke or a fart joke Mm. or something right Mm -hmm. like yep like i think that is kind of a trope as well um Mm -hmm. or at least in this case it serves to kind of you know, undermine that age, that, that undermine the idea that like, maybe he could also be like a romantic interest in some way, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. I do think, I don't think he's like totally desexualized. I just think it's like that more of that, like, Oh, we can't take him seriously. 
Yeah, I think yeah, that's I a agree. good point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with the waffle, I didn't even think about it. I didn't, the waffle party thing. But yeah, that he has to, he has to like, quote, pay for a sexual experience in some way. Mm. Right. And he's done it multiple times. Yeah. And it's his favorite thing. That's what he looks it's, most yeah. forward to. Yeah. 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 I really liked the the fact that Dylan's perspective changed once he realized what was outside. I think that like the fact that he and Irving are the examples of two different angles you can take, you can really buy into it or you can, it, you know, the angles you can take towards work, you can really buy in and, and understand or believe that you are an integral part to a giant uh, mission or you can be motivated by the little perks that they throw out at you. Um, mm-hmm. And that both of those things are undermined when, um, you know, there is something more important, a relationship um, with another person uh, being enough to break you out of those cycles, I think is really um, a pretty, one kind of one of the themes or like the underlying moments that um, really resonated most with me. Yeah. And I think just to add to that, it's it's not just about... Um, Fuck, what did you just say? I think it also speaks to like not just the perks of of like 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 not just the structure of the company, but something something about like you know, like all of those like when presented with something that's truer to your actual self, like the thing that you can't sever, like that's when everything breaks. Mm-hmm. That's that's really interesting. Um I actually, I was just looking down at my notes and one thing that jumped out to me with respect to the break room, and again, on a rewatch, some of these things make a little bit more sense, but when Helly comes back from the break room, she and Dylan are sitting kind of off to the side and she's like, what was the deal with the mumbling man? Like, did you hear the mumbling man in the background? Uh, like, what was that about? And he, and Dylan says, oh no, when I'm in the break room, break room I hear a crying baby so so some aspect of the break room maybe subconsciously tapping into the to the aspect of severance um you know I'm curious so the mumbling man for Helly, I I assume is her father mm-hmm. or her grandfather or whoever that mm-hmm. that guy is to her right mm-hmm. and then the thought I just had with Dylan was a crying baby, the kid that we see him with is like a toddler, a little bit older, but certainly still at crying age. Mm-hmm. But I wonder whether or not Dylan like lost a child and that's why he's severing himself or, or some some difficulty with his, his children or his child. Um, you know, just totally speculating. But but mm-hmm. I, I recall that as being a piece where on a rewatch, in the moment it does it feels throwaway. You know, and then when you watch it again and you know all of the loose ends that get tied up later, it's nice to like realize almost nothing seems to be throwaway in this show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that that actually leads me to another question that I, I wanted to ask you guys about. Um, so in in the episode with the dinner party where Mark is over or the lack of dinner mm. party <laughs> um, mm-hmm. where they're feasting on ideas. um Someone in someone mentions that Mark's wife was a 
professor of like Russian literature. And I'm just curious if either of you guys know, mm. like, is there like a famous like Russian uh, novel that like goes into these concepts or like could tie in? Like I could see that being a piece that they're setting up, you know? Mm. Not a lit guy. Mm. Dostoevsky is the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, my crime and punishment. Yeah, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Crime and punishment. Yeah, literally I never read it though. Me either. Me either. <laughs> no. But yeah, crime and punishment. I mean, I think just you guys knowing that right there is like enough for me to be like, okay, yeah, that's probably going to come up. You know. Yeah, I mean, you know, if I if I had to do like a like a research based kind of like that is definitely a thread I would look into. Like if I wanted to predict what I thought Mm Severance could turn into, I would like, I would go into Russian lit just to see like, Oh, are they, (laughs) are they trying to pull out stuff here? It would be like Russian lit, uh, the pharmaceutical industry and like, you know, late breaking or like experimental um, human psychology. Right. Like what the fuck are they trying to get at here with some of this stuff? Totally. I did not catch that. Yeah, that's a total, that's definitely a valid thread. Interesting. Literature in general in this, you know, speaking to like the art thing. Yeah. Like not to, not to deviate too much, but like, you know, we were talking about um, uh, visual art, just like painting before, but Mm -hmm. there's like the whole thing with the brother-in-law and like the Mm -hmm. the idea of like subversive, subversive text and ideas and you can't bring this, you know, there's there's a lot of sort of like uh how to how to position things as propaganda or what's like legitimate text within or without you know inside or outside of the company um and the brother just i just love i love that guy <laughs> it's such a <laughs> it's such a doofus <laughs> he shows up in stuff and basically is that in like everything i've exactly. seen him in yeah exactly. I liked the um, I liked the way that his his insights were like I actually found like the when Mark's reading it's like a montage of him reading the quotes I thought they were all like played as very silly but they were they were very profound when you think about them from a brain where someone's never read anything else before like they're they're mm-hmm. silly in their simplicity and they're like kind of goofy analogies but they really resonate with someone who's uh, kind of got a blank slate, you know. A blank slate, and in a world where where everything's pretty binary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It it creates more um, nuance, right? To like a, a lot of the different things. I think one of the things that he uh, that the brother in law's book says is, um, "Your job needs you more than you need it." Mm-hmm. Something to that extent, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think about the, I mean, I think capitalism is generally a theme and underlying thing, but like, there's this assumption about they have to have a job, whereas the brother has a job that I don't know if he's making any money, and I don't know what the sister does for a living, and I don't know what the deal is with this town that's like part company town and part not company town, Mm -hmm. and also kind of like, I mean, Fordism being in Michigan, and this idea of like the great, the like white supremacist idea of the great north like it's all it's a cold town i don't know what's the deal with that like just 
I know that that's not a question, but I've been trying to grapple with the specificity of like capitalism and needing economic survival, which is never really directly addressed. Mm. Like it's just assumed everyone has a job kind of, mm-hmm. and then they live in a place that is unclear that like people have a feeling about Lumen. Like everyone knows the name Lumen, but not ever everyone works there. Yeah. Like even when you talked about the, from the consumer perspective, we didn't hear anyone who's like, I buy Lumen products or I buy Lumen pharmaceuticals. Like the people who are not severed only think about it in terms of they have this weird, you know, technology that some people opt into and some people don't. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I didn't get anywhere with this question, but something yeah. I talk a lot about with my partner is just like, where do you think they actually are? Mm-hmm. You know, like, is it like, is it like, uh, you know, is it, is it supposed to be like a callback to like Kodak in upstate in, in mm. or, or is it like yeah. a university town, you know, dep- like one of these, like mm. either like Rust Belt kind of, they're, they're kind of mixing things, you know, but a lot yeah. of the stuff is at play of like university town or like, like you were saying Fordism, mm-hmm. like what, you know, maybe it doesn't have to, maybe it's not based on any one real place, mm-hmm. but they're definitely evoking like a lot of the um, economic structures and social structures associated with that for sure. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about the college town piece, but yeah, because they are both professors and they both left that. Yeah. And, and like, you know, there's like, at least in my experience with like, with like, you know, the, I don't know, like the punk scene, obviously, like yeah. resonated for me. Mm, and it's yes. like that sort of like the way that it was presented felt very college town. Like, yes. okay, it's a little mm-hmm. bit insular, yeah. right? Yes. This isn't like national bands, but like everybody is serious and it means something. Yeah. And totally. that just felt totally like closed community. But like there is a subculture. Yeah. Which you don't see in most things. <laughs> in, no, not really. Yeah, most media portrayals. I thought the call out of the fact that um, it seems like they're mixing a bunch of different places together. Like I hadn't thought Rust Belt until you said so, Rios. But like definitely Rust Belt vibes. You know, like a mm-hmm. like a, an industry or one one particular organization or company really driving a lot of the. You know, it's a huge facility. It seems like a lot of people work there and it seems like maybe not everyone's severed. Um, but yeah, very much like 21st century type um, kind of scary tech looming in like a in a very 20th century type of, you know, American economic uh, Fordism type city, you know, like uh, that the, the overlapping of those two things. You know, it's interesting that the company has such a an established lore and history going back like whatever a hundred years or however many and that it's it's also still like inside the facility it looks very like kind of science fictiony um, that this place kind of is in both the old world and the new world is really um, must must have been intentional I would imagine you know. Yeah, what do you think about their like retro desks and retro computers? My, my thought is that that's like a uh, strictly like a filmmaking visual, like create the palette kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. It really, I think the the overwhelming like kind of 
brightness and and whiteness of the halls and the the very like yeah 70s sort of style of of the you know there's like shag or there's like carpet and like mid-century modern like uh types of i don't know uh office office layouts and stuff i don't know i i get the feeling that um it was a visual choice but it it certainly could have more implications than that yeah i don't i did i tried also not to listen to any like commentary or other theory about this show but i the one thing that i remember someone on some other podcast said is like Ben Stiller, who I guess he made it. He's a producer. Mm-hmm. He's the director. Yeah, yeah, like that. He's never had an office job, and like it looks to some people as like a person who's never had an office job's idea of what an office job looks like. Oh my god, I love that so much. <laughs> yeah, he's like visually okay. Yeah, I can picture it. I've got it. You're right. Yeah, this tiny cubicle in a giant sea of empty rooms. <laughs> uh, that is very funny. Yeah, he. It's interesting that he's the person telling this story because he is a second generation entertainer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? The legacy piece, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I was also when you were talking about mid century modern and like the legacy, it made me think about the ridiculous like um they made the house, right? The house and they made the wax sculptures oh, of yeah. all the people. Like that whole thing, I mean, that's very artistic and very religious and just like a wild thing to exist. Yep. That's all. And they definitely tipped their hand that she, I mean, I didn't see it until the second season, that she was going to be part of the family Heliar when she was, like, looking at the statue of the only woman CEO. Yeah. And she said something, right? That, like, someone said, like, I can't, I, maybe I wrote it down. But I don't know. Something like, she said, like, she was, like, scared. She said, Jesus. And, like, he said, no, it's Egan. I don't know. There was, like, clearly an alliterate like yeah there was a, to that. there was a moment where she was she's looking at that female ceo and irving comes yeah. over and he's like really inspirational oh, yeah. she was yeah she was uh since a child she had wanted to be the, oh yeah uh and then heli goes oh that's amazing it actually almost makes me uh miss my own childhood yes exactly sorry no totally no <laughs> no problem there was there was another moment actually in the very first or maybe it's the second episode because it's like the flashback to when we see her kind of onboarding with um with milchek um mm-hmm. but so the four questions that they ask or the five questions yes. that they ask when she wakes up are uh who are you what were your mother the color of your mother's eyes what is mr egan's favorite breakfast yeah. Um, and then the two questions about the state. What state were you yeah. born in? Name any state. And the Mr. Egan's Breakfast one comes up the next day, or the, in the next episode when she's walking around with Milchek. They look at the giant statue of um, of the founder, Kier. Mm-hmm. And there was like a moment where they talk about his favorite breakfast and that she she knows it and she's been aware of it for a long time. Like that's another little plant that like, you know, Milchek also says, I think it's really amazing what you're doing here. You know, like, mm-hmm. I think it's really amazing that you've decided to do this or whatever. And the care that he shows her on the outside, mirrored by the the benevolence that he shows her on the inside. Mm-hmm. You know, when you go mm-hmm. back and you watch it again, it's clear that she's someone different. It's clear that mm-hmm. she's not mm-hmm. being, yes. you know, taken care of in the same way. Like, even at that point, Mark is the only person that we see outside, aside from Heli's onboarding. And 
we see him in the context of Mrs. Cobell keeping an eye on him. You know what I mean? We mm-hmm, don't see mm-hmm. him being taken care of or, or delicately handled, um, mm-hmm. you know, ushered in and out of the, the hallway door. Um, so that on a rewatch, it, it, it became a little clearer that they were setting up, you know? Yeah. I'm really curious to see, to hear what you all think about Milchik and just like, him as an enforcer but not the top enforcer and i know that i'm very like stuck on like the race of each person and their function but like that aspect and uh also the woman who represents the board she's Mm -hmm. the representative right and so there's like two enforcement figures who are black in this company that otherwise is like run and otherwise like the power center is in whiteness obviously yeah I, that's something that I was definitely hyper aware of is mm-hmm. that Milchek is, you know, a black character and uh, who, whose roles and responsibilities are punishing people on behalf of the people, the white people who tell him mm-hmm. to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I think his role seems incredibly complicated. There's like uh it's also an interesting thing that to the people inside the severed office, the black man is like the, the ultimate threat, you know, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. um, so like inside an office world, this dark skinned black man is not only like, uh, threatening to them, but like not a part of their, he's a coworker, but he's not part of their circle. You know what I mean? There's like a, mm-hmm. but he's also not part of Cobell's circle because she, she creates a barricade between him and and the work she's doing when she can. Um, it, that's a really interesting character, and, and again, I could see it as like um, when we were talking about um, Mark's wife's character, the the Asian woman, mm-hmm. um, and like the way that showrunners may have just may just be showing their implicit biases. Um, you know, I don't know that it was like on the mind of Ben Stiller to like, to have these nuanced, like, uh, thoughts on race or if he was just sort of like casting in empty places, he was like, Oh, this could be where a black character is. And this could be where an Asian character is because of the implicit biases in there. I don't know. I'm overly speculating clearly, but, um, just something that I was thinking about. Yeah. Same. I was super aware of, of that too. I'm wondering, do you guys, I mean, I haven't done a rewatch, so uh, do, do they ever show Milchik outside of the office? I don't believe so, no. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm super curious, like, what his motivations are, because it's like, mm-hmm. at least Cobell, we, we know there's an altar, and there's, mm-hmm. like, agency, and, and some either religious or whatever tie, but with Milchik, it's like, you know, and, and with Dylan too, honestly, like what's, Mm -hmm. why are they there? (laughs) You know? Yeah. Because like, I feel like the thing that's not ever explicitly mentioned for any of the characters is the economics. Like we don't know how broke anybody is. Exactly. And all we have to go on is their, their, you know, personal motivation so like what's what are their family lives like at least we know like dylan there's clearly some kind of parental thing going on Mm -hmm. um but milichick it's like who would sign up for this shit you know 
Yeah. yeah. And then at the end, pitting them against each other, Dylan and Milchik. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that the situation forces them. Yeah. Yeah, that the only physical altercations have been happening between those two characters as well. Because they fight during the the dance party and then they fight at the end. Or he tackles him at the end. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's... There's a lot of race layered into it in complex ways, you know? Like... Mm-hmm. That I don't know the 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 showrunners or filmmakers were like aware that they were doing, frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. I'd be curious to see how it plays out in, in exactly um, the second season because you know I I could totally see because that I think that is like I think like fostering conflict between people of color is like. A thing, whether implicit yes. or intentional, in in a lot of different, not just workplace contexts, but more generally, right? Yes. So, like, I'm like, what I'm what I'm looking for next season is like, is that something that they deliberately like put into the script and are going to continue to explore, or you know, is yeah, is it a throwaway? I I would really hope that it wasn't that they have a plan for that, or they've read the internet or listening to this right now <laughs> yeah. and fucking yeah. do some shit <laughs> because there's you know they have an opportunity to, to really like you know um they have an opportunity to explore like actual fraught territory and and tell yeah. tell a story that's true to like real experience this this conversation just reminded me there is actually one other black character that we haven't talked about um, that I'd love to get your guys' thoughts on. Um, the the character of, I think it's Ragabi, Carol Ragabi. She's the one who, she's the scientist or doctor yes. who severs an unsevered oh. PD. Um, you know, I, I feel like she's so crucial, um, but also kind of in a very, like, we don't get a lot of insight into her. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, she's a one-sided character that we only see in the context of confusion from Mark. Um, so I'm just curious what, I'm sure she would have to come back, um, theoretically as, as kind of the linchpin for, you know, like she's the, she's the doctor that does the thing that they're, they're spending Mm -hmm. so much time talking about. Um, and I'm, I'm, I, I feel like that huge point of the plot sort of faded into the background of my mind. I'm curious if you guys um, have any thoughts on her character or that that's kind of subplot. I think it's interesting that she clearly is the one who's very certain about having a conscience around this. And so is, uh, I guess like, I'm trying to think, gender wise also like so is heli r has like as as the innie is like very sure and in some ways also mark's sister like it seems Mm. to be really the women of the show who are like very sure in their they're being against or uncertain about this process and uh like and then the character ragabi being a female assumably a female doctor and this is, I really wanted to bring this the conversation because I've had this epiphany the entire time we we're talking about like the innie and the outie referring to the belly button and relating to the uh, like birth, right? And yes. so, like, so there, that, yeah. And I think the idea of 
the doctor thing like there's it's interesting because i'm like really yeah obviously hung up on the birth thing there's no doctor when the senator's wife gives birth but there is this doctor who's basically birthing new people the innies yeah a birth and rebirth yeah and then she's like sure that she and then obviously she's a badass right because she kills the head enforcer yeah and then and works in i guess like the sewer like some lab underground like yeah i don't I don't know. It makes me think about all that and like any, all the tropes of shows that have like labs underground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. There's a lot. I mean, I feel like women in media tend to shoulder the responsibility of like the moral conscious or like, mm-hmm. the, you know, I mean, real life to a certain extent too. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. That it, it's, Yeah, they're they're playing that out for sure. I don't know how deep the breeder thing goes. That's you know, they they laid a lot of seeds out, I gotta say. They like, did. I, I think all that stuff is I think I think it feels like they're actually thinking about all that stuff. I agree. Um, which is nice. That's I think that's what makes I think that's what's make the makes the show like enjoyable. The other the other thing, this is not super relevant, but when you were talking about like the, uh, like the the interior design, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, I like, um, like part of me was like, I think it's just a choice, you know, the Ben Stiller thing, like someone who's never worked in an office, but like you know, if you want to read into it, like it's super disorienting to have things that have no real world analog right mm-hmm. like none of that stuff yeah. it all looks like toys so it like and white walls like it, it's all meant to be disorienting kind of yeah that's that was my read on it um and you know the r&d lab same thing when they go to uh what's what's Irv's love interest name uh bert bert when they go to bert's department you know and seeing like the the sort of sterile, like three D printed, you know, all this shit in there. Yeah. That I don't know. It all seems otherworldly and a little bit like play school. Maybe not play school, but you know, it doesn't seem like an actual workplace. Yeah, like a cartoon version. Yeah, yeah. That's actually Bert's coworker. When you said the one black character we hadn't talked about, the one I was thinking of oh, yeah. is his coworker. Yeah, and her being like an older black woman. Mm-hmm. And just like also in the same vein of Dylan feeling very, like very bought in to the fear around the other group and very protective of their own group. Yes. Yeah. Whereas Bert and Irv are both like, Hey guys, look at these, look at these, you know, they're like us. We're, we're friends. And uh, yeah, the hostility between Dylan and the woman from R and D. Yeah. Really. I, I, it was like played for comic relief. I really enjoyed it, but it is, you know, there's something to be said for sure about the fact that those two characters are defensive, whereas like even Mark, while skeptical of R and D, is like Dylan, calm down, please, like be be polite. And I think Bert might do the same to his coworker. Yeah, yeah. The okay. The one of the last questions as we wrap up: 
what I the first thing that's really interesting to me about the show is the idea of they do this the actual work they do supposedly is like having the idea of having a feeling of fear or other emotion around numbers. Like that is the thing that really drew me in initially and collapsing like the idea of STEM or numbers as a totally unemotional field and then bringing in like a very human thing. I don't know. Any thoughts about that? I think fear driving the thing that they know they're doing their job right is definitely a a component that is uh, parallels some of my work experiences. You know, fear of Mm. it's not necessarily fear of like the work that you're doing, but fear motivating you to not goof up um, the numbers, you know? Yeah. I think there's, I think there is like an embodied sort of like, um, like the sort of embodied nature of work, right? The idea that you mm-hmm. could feel your work. That's a thing that I've experienced and seen in other contexts where it's like, you know, maybe you get like, like people who work with spreadsheets, for example, teaching the new person, oh, you just do like, the, you know, like if you've ever seen someone who's done the same thing for like 10 years, right? They, they feel their work. They don't, you know, they can do things efficiently that like, that like to a, to someone new would look fucking insane. Or like if you've ever worked Mm -hmm, with someone mm -hmm. who doesn't know like exactly how to do something, but they've created their own system for doing a thing, Mm -hmm. it might be totally backwards and like really like inefficient, but they're just so good at it because they have their thing. Like, Mm -hmm. I think, I don't, I think that is, the type of thing that a lot of workplaces foster, whether intentionally or unintentionally, you know, like it's about, it's about the output. So like, however you get there is fine. And like, you know, when you've been somewhere long enough, that becomes like, uh, like it's, it's second nature. I do this thing yeah. second nature, you know, I can respond to an email the same way, like every time for this type of thing, or like I can do, I can do the accounting in 20 minutes because I just, you know, for me, it was data entry. I could filter, like, I could literally at one point in my life just read through, like, lines and lines of, of data entry uh, cells looking for, like, spelling errors or, like, <laughs> you know, it, uh, discontinuity, you know, like, just shit like that. You were micro data refiners. Yeah, I was going to say. I think that's a lot of people's experience yeah. of work. Like people who are like anyone who does repetitive um, uh, physical tasks where it's like you don't even have to look at like the buttons to know you're, you know what I yeah. mean? Like I just think yeah. that's, I think that becomes like a source of pride and and a, and, a, and sort of like a also like a coping mechanism of like, okay, I, I can do this good or like, oh, let me show mm. it's really easy. Like that's that's one of the the that's the the tension of like the day-to-day experience of work well i feel like we got a lot of places i know reus is at work so we should let him go (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah bring your full self is put together through collective effort from the members of converge collaborative a special thanks today to rios and amy and to you for listening If you're interested in learning more about our group, our work, or would just like to say hi, you can reach us by emailing converge at convergecollaborative.com.